I am a long distance runner. I've started training for a long run. And that means I'm out there somewhere in the world running four times per week. I like a particular brand of shoes and I like keeping my running shoes clean for no particular reason other than to show myself because nobody else notices to show myself that I love running. Clean shoes are an expression of love. I have a watch. It's not a fancy watch. It has a timer. This is enough. Training for a long run means finding a balance between time and distance. You want to run the right distance in the right time. You want to pace yourself. You want to squeeze more distance into a set time. But if you're going for a long run, you have to do this very slowly. Over weeks and months and even years, a long-distance runner is a patient runner. Fatigue can only be conquered slowly, slowly, slowly. The other day, I was out for an easy run. As I learned more about running and patience, as I internalize this knowledge and apply it, I run more slowly. I allow myself to slow down or even stop for a brief pause if I want to. As I was running, I saw this gold ring on the ground. My mind said, you just passed a gold ring. So I stopped, turned around, picked up the ring, tried it on all my fingers, decided that my right index was the best fit, and I kept running. When I got home, I examined it more closely and decided that I could not tell if it was real gold or not. It's kind of scuffed and silvery on one side. And I don't know if that happens with real gold. Is it a wedding band? It's comfortable, but ugly. It's got a couple of scratches. It's probably not real gold. But maybe it's gold. I don't know why, but I wore it for a few runs in the following days. Sometimes I put it on at home while doing the dishes or watching television. I'm actually wearing it right now. I don't know why I like wearing it. It's really much too big for any of my fingers. It stays on my index finger when I'm running because I hold my hands in a sort of relaxed fist position. I've read a lot of internet advice about running over the years, so some of it I hold on to and some of it I discard. One piece of advice I like that, uh, that I've held on to for a long time is that you should hold your fingers as though you're running with eggs in your hands. Wrap your fingers in, but don't squeeze. Hold the eggs firmly, but don't crack the shells. Welcome to Sound Digressions. I'm your host, Samuel, here with another installment of The Sound of Doom. We're going to focus today on auditory experiences. I've got three little digressions for you that I've been thinking about recently. Actually, it took me a while to think of a third one. Some of you may remember from episode 9, 
I think it's titled, We're Not Nuclear Scientists, We're Optimists. Uh, in that episode, I gave you three stories about nuclear waste. I like that format. I think it worked well, so I wanted to try and do it again. I was doing research on a story related to the Russiagate stuff, but with a slight Canadian angle, which somehow led me to a second story, very focused on auditory experiences. And it wasn't until a couple of days ago that I realized that I had in my hands already a really easy third story to tell. You can find us on Instagram at Sound Digressions and on Twitter too and Facebook. If you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. It helps spread the word and we would be super grateful. Sports have really suffered during the pandemic. You might remember that one of the first significant events in North America, one of the first signs that something was seriously wrong, was the cancelling of an NBA game on March 11th, 2020. Right before tip-off, with the arena already full of spectators, the game between the Utah Jazz and the Oklahoma City Thunder was called off. Rudy Gobert, the infected player, was not on the scene. But the league took the extraordinary step, what seemed extraordinary at the time, uh, they took the step that night of suspending the season indefinitely. Over the next few days, as everybody remembers, everything, everything, everything got cancelled, including a whole bunch of upcoming boxing fights. I am a boxing fan, some of you might know that already. Boxing was actually one of the first sports to come back in North America. During the summer of 2020, we were treated to numerous not very good matches. Unlike a team sport, you can hold a boxing match with very few people around. You have the commentators and the commentary can be done remotely or distance very easily. Camera crews can be minimal, uh, and they're all masked, and everybody who related to the fight was masked, except for the fighters, of course. They were the only two people who were allowed to go be around everybody without a mask. Everybody present for the event was isolated in a hotel for at least two weeks uh, before. The regulations were not perfect. Many matches got cancelled because a trainer or a boxer or a caterer, somebody tested positive. But we had some boxing back, even if it wasn't top-notch matches. These new matches presented a very different audio experience than what we're used to. These events were held without an audience. Audiences can be incredibly loud the audience had, up to then, been an integral part of the experience of watching a fight, of watching any sport, right? With an empty arena, you could now actually hear the fight. Boxers make way, way more noise than tennis players. For the first time, television audiences could hear it much more clearly than they ever had. And the punches, you could hear the thud 
of the punches. You could hear the damage these bodies were suffering. But the most significant difference in the sound of a fight came when someone got knocked down. Before, when a knockdown occurred, the audience would go crazy. The screaming intensified. The collective adrenaline rush took over the arena. But now, without an audience, we got an eerie silence. You could hear a pin drop. Almost everyone was silent. Neither the coaches for the guy who fell, nor the coaches for the guy standing, uttered a single word. And the commentators, for the most part, kept their, kept their mouth shut. The only one allowed to speak at that moment, the referee, simply counted. One, two, three, four, five. What had previously been intensified by an uproar was now intensified by a silence. It was really creepy at times. The coroner, hoping the guy gets up, said nothing. The coroner, hoping the guy stayed down, said nothing. All we had was 10 seconds watching a hurt boxer desperately calculating in his confused head if he had enough energy to keep going. As a side story, thinking of intense silence, maybe some of you remember this. During Occupy Wall Street, the students at the University of California, Davis, conducted a peaceful protest and the Chancellor, Linda Katehi, authorized an aggressive campus police response. This was in 2011. Video came out of two police officers spraying seated peaceful protesters with tear gas directing fire extinguisher sites canisters directly at their faces. In response, the students organized a silent protest. Over 1,000 students stood or sat along the path from Chancellor Katehi's office to her car one evening. As she left work, everyone stared at her in silence. Video of her walk made headlines. Many outlets dubbed it her walk of shame, which reminds me of my own walks of shame. But those stories are for another episode. Around the world, every day, around 10 p.m., as streets quiet down and people start going to bed, that's when the hum emerges. A distinct, low rumbling, like a truck left idling. Or a generator, a mechanical sound in the distance. A hum. For some people, the hum is loud enough to cause discomfort, even prevent sleep, and they must drown it out with other white noise to escape from it. Others, like Dr. Glenn McPherson in British Columbia, experience a quieter, less invasive version. Dr. McPherson has been studying the hum for nearly a decade. He hosts the World Hum Map website, 
where individuals can share their experiences with the hum. Thousands of people from all over the world have contributed. The data is open and available to anyone. Local hums have been reported for decades, normally named after the town where they appear. There is the bristle hum, the largs hum in Scotland, the Taos hum in New Mexico, the Windsor hum in Ontario, the West Seattle hum in Washington, the Sausalito hum in California, the Kokomo hum in Indiana, the list goes on and on. Dr. McPherson was one of the first to posit the theory that, even though accounts of the hum can vary widely, that it is a global phenomenon. He lists four theories on his website that might account for the hum. Theory one, that very low radio frequencies are, and I quote, interacting with living tissue and activating the human auditory system in a way the brain interprets a sound. Theory two, the hum is an accumulation of all the mechanical noise humans have introduced into the world. Traffic, factories, mines, airplanes, ventilation systems, etc. all add up to create a low rumbling only some of us can hear. Theory three, the hum is the sound of the earth shifting some slow geological process. And theory four, the hum is an internal process similar to tinnitus, like when you hear that kind of high-pitched noise in your ear. See, most people are familiar with it. Also known as autoacoustic emissions. Dr. McPherson has done an incredible, incredible amount of research on this subject. Uh, for someone who has zero funding and is not tied to any institution, he has extensive documentation of his own thinking about the worldwide hum, the shift in his ideas from one theory to another. I myself have shifted a few times from finding his research ridiculous to finding it intriguing. For a long time, he thought uh, theory one was the most probable source of the hum, that very low frequencies were responsible for the sound. So he went out and personally financed the construction of a soundproof box that would cancel out very low frequencies. And after many delays, he took his steel box out into the wilderness, far away from any habitation or manufacturing that would pollute his experiment. He laid inside the coffin-like structure, and he listened. He could still hear the hum. So that theory was no longer in the lead as a possible explanation. Reading the comments in his blog, you can see a lot of people take this hum very seriously, and many sound experts, not just amateur theorists, pitch in suggestions for avenues of investigation. When I first looked at the four theories as to the source of the worldwide hum, autoacoustic emissions seemed the most probable to me. Reports of the hum read a lot like UFO sightings. I mean, there is a common thread, but there's also enough divergence among the accounts that, at least to me, it seemed improbable that a single external force 
could explain all these experiences. But I'm not a sound expert. As soon as you eliminate all background noise, your ears turn inwards. You start listening to your body, literally, not figuratively. Go ahead, right now. Take a moment to find a quiet space, or or wait until later, in the evening after 10 p.m. Go ahead and stick your fingers, your bare fingers, into your ears. What do you hear? Do you hear a quiet rumbling? Anyway, I'm not an expert on acoustic phenomena, it turns out. Very few people are actual experts on acoustic phenomena. Another unusual sound appeared in Havana in November of 2016, just a few weeks after Trump was elected, around the same time Fidel Castro passed away. Close to the newly reopened U.S. Embassy, a staffer complained to a colleague about a strange, bothersome sound outside as outside his apartment. The colleague could hear it too, and neither could explain where it was coming from. One suggested that it sounded like cicadas, but the other dismissed it. He said it sounded too mechanical. A few months later, a third staffer told one of the first two that he was leaving Cuba right away. He had just undergone a medical examination for a series of symptoms, including hearing loss. He believed he had been targeted by a powerful beam of high-pitched sound that seemed to be pointed right at him. I quote, Before long, more and more people at the embassy were talking about it. They too started to get sick. The symptoms were as diverse as they were terrifying. Memory loss, mental stupor, hearing problems, headaches, in all, Some two dozen people were eventually evacuated for testing and treatment. That comes from an article published by Vanity Fair. I always forget that Vanity Fair sometimes publishes actual journalism. This piece was by Jack Hitt. It's one of the better accounts of the events that followed. The appearance of this mysterious sound, the whole affair, eventually came to be known as the Havana Syndrome. Jack Hitt, by the way, the author, is a regular contributor to This American Life. But the popular podcast, as far as I know, has never done an episode on this subject. Anyway, back to Havana. Embassy staffers are dropping like flies, and the American government starts frantically speculating what the source of those maladies might be, the primary suspicion, Well, you have to remember that U.S. embassies are full of CIA operatives. You know, the same people that tried to assassinate Castro and undermine his government on multiple occasions. They they suspect that Cuba has either developed or acquired a clandestine acoustic weapon capable of remotely inducing concussions or other injuries something well beyond the capabilities of the U.S. military. The State Department's own medical director said that the injuries sustained could only come from non-natural sources. 
the two dozen staffers and family members that were evacuated undergo extensive examinations at the University of Pennsylvania. Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State at the time, is fully fanning the flames. The media, even though nobody knew what the source of the illness is, follows the government's lead because the CIA and the State Department have never lied about anything, right? And they keep describing it as an attack. You start to get the sense that it's akin to Pearl Harbor. In October 2017, the Associated Press publishes a scoop. They have a recording of the possible weapon. And they release the audio. And everyone goes nuts. And almost every article describes the sound as cricket-like. The cricket-like sound, they said. But it's months before anyone takes the recording to a cricket expert. A report by the FBI, released in January 2018, details their visit with one such expert, Alan Sanborn, a biologist at Barry University in Miami Shores, who states with near certainty that cicadas are responsible for the noise and says that one of these bugs, quote, wouldn't really hurt you unless it was shoveled into your ear canal, end quote. A later study of the sound was released in 2019, this time by Alexander Stubbs at the University of California at Berkeley and Fernando Montialegre Zapata at the UK's University of Lincoln. And they found the Indies short-tailed cricket was the most likely responsible party for this sonic attack. Cuban investigators had already told the Americans back in 2017 that it was either cicadas or crickets. I have been preparing material for this episode and reading articles all week, but somehow I didn't think to look at the ProPublica article that Jack Hitt references in his Vanity Fair piece until today. I just read it just before recording. It is a bit sloppily written, repeats the same stories multiple times, but it gives a very, very thorough account of events. All the events, behind the scenes, the stuff that happens from the initial reports to supervisors, secret meetings where alarms were raised, how the Cubans responded, how the Canadians got involved. Oh yeah, there were a lot of Canadians involved too. The Canadian Embassy neighbors the American Embassy, and they live in similar compounds, and they share compounds uh, just on the outskirts of La Habana. Anyway, the Canadians got wind of the rumors about attacks and started to feel sick as well. A total of 27 Canadian citizens were examined, diplomats, spouses, and their children, the RCMP got involved and conducted their own investigation, finding nothing. Ten families were affected um, and eventually sued the federal government for failing to protect them, although they could not say precisely from what. The Canadian government had a very subdued response. They didn't blame Cuba for anything. Actually, the RCMP worked with Cuban authorities on their investigation. But 
The U.S. government went on the offensive. The Trump administration, which had always shown displeasure at the idea of normalizing relationship with the island nation, they went crazy. They pulled out about 60% of their staff from Cuba and kicked a bunch of Cuban diplomats out of Washington. A few American politicians came out saying, listen, the FBI says we don't have any evidence of an attack. Maybe we shouldn't be using that word. But hardly anyone listened to them. News stories still talk about an attack to this day. The doctors who examined the American diplomats could not provide anything conclusive either. In a report published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, they said, These individuals appear to have sustained injury to widespread brain networks without an associated history of head trauma. According to one author, the team enjoyed referring to this contradiction as the, and I quote, immaculate concussion, end quote. Now, I know I sound like I'm poking fun at all these diplomats, and well, yes, I am a little bit, but the more I read about these incidents, I have no doubt that they did suffer something their symptoms were real. Most people have heard of the placebo effect. To put it in super rudimentary terms, in case someone hasn't, uh, the placebo effect is when someone feels better after taking medication for, for whatever ailment they might have, even though the medication might be simply a sugar pill, a placebo. Well, the reverse can also happen. I'm sure there are tons of people, and I include myself in this category, who felt very sick at some point during the beginning of the pandemic, but tested negative for the virus. Was I actually ill, or did I simply think I was ill because of all the stress and panic around me, and manifest all these symptoms without actually having corona? Or did symptoms of a mild cold or something similar turning to a worrying bout with COVID. Robert Bartholomew, a professor of medical sociology, says in the Vanity Fair piece, think of mass psychogenic illness as the placebo effect in reverse. Quote, you can often make yourself feel better by taking a sugar pill. You can also make yourself feel sick if you think you are becoming sick. Mass psychogenic illness involves the nervous system and can mimic a variety of illnesses. End quote. To quote from Vanity Fair again, we tend to think of stress as something that afflicts an individual who is enduring heavy psychological pain, but conversion disorder, or mass psychogenic illness as it's also known, is essentially stress that strikes a close-knit group like an embassy under siege, and behaves epidemiologically. That is, it spreads like an infection. Because the origins of this affliction are psychological, it's easy for those outside, for those on the outside, to dismiss it as being all in the victim's mind. But the physical symptoms created by the mind are far from imaginary or faked. They are every bit as real every bit as painful, and every bit as testable 
as those that would be inflicted by, say, a sonic ray gun. End quote. Just like the crickets, Cuban scientists were the first to posit this theory, but because Americans can't trust Cubans, and this snowball of paranoia was already well down the hill, they were dismissed. The first people to hear the sonic weapon didn't think anything of it, until months later, and their bosses, without thinking they were doing anything wrong, didn't make any public statements before um, they didn't make any public statements about people falling ill. This allowed the rumor mill between staffers to run wild, and when those bosses finally said something, it seemed like they had been hiding information, farthering the paranoia. And as it reached each new level of government, politicians amplified whatever part of the story suited them and discarded the rest. And then those staffers were having their fears echoed back at them from their senators, from their president, repeating this loop of accusations and secrecy. They would say, we know the Cubans are up to something, but we can't give you any information about it because it's top secret. And we can't show you the medical records of those who suffer from the attack because of privacy. There were even reports of a similar so-called attack on an embassy in China. To quote again from Vanity Fair, Bartholomew, the medical sociologist, calls this the data equivalent of a fuzzy Bigfoot photo. That is to say, every non-existent creature captured in an out-of-focus photograph is typically just blurry enough to permit anyone to see whatever they want to see, like Chupacabra, or the ivory-billed woodpecker, or Ebugogo, or Bat Squatch, or the lizard man of Scape or Swamp. End quote. All of which sound like excellent subjects we should explore in future episodes of Sound Digressions. The matter of the Havana Syndrome is still officially unresolved. I'm going to post a link to both the Vanity Fair article and the ProPublica piece in the show notes for anyone who cares to read them. Talk to you later.